Thank you for listening to the Redemption Church podcast. For more information about Redemption Church, please visit redemptionokc.com. You can stay up to date on sermons by subscribing to our podcast on iTunes. Thanks again for listening. Let me pray for us, and we'll get into the Word today. Father, thank you for sending your Son, that we might have life, that we might be reunited to you in relationship, and that we would, uh, that we would be called your friends, that we would be called your sons and your daughters, uh, that by grace, Father, we might live with you forever and experience forever joy. Father, I pray that you would overwhelm us with your goodness uh, that's evident in this Christmas season through the birth of your son and through his incarnation. Father, we pray it in Christ's name, amen. Well, as we're kind of getting going here, I've got a couple things I'm gonna bring up on stage with me. And uh, any of you ever have any unexpected guests? Like you're coming into the holiday season and, and just imagine your most famous friend that as you're frantically trying to get Christmas stuff ready and everything's kind of rolling and you're trying to get the meal ready and everything's happening, that you get a text from a friend and said, hey, I didn't see you at the airport, but I caught an Uber. I'll be there in five. And so your most famous friend is, is showing up and as they do, uh, you invite them in and as you invite them into your home, they walk in and they bring in a bag and they just start unpacking and acting like, well, maybe they're gonna be here for a little while and it feels a little bit uncomfortable and you're not really sure that, that they were invited or that, that, that you had welcomed them in, but I mean, here they are and what are you gonna do, right? I mean, you can't turn them away, it's Christmas and they're here and they've shown up at your house. And so as you start to, to interact with them, you're watching this whole thing and you know, Christmas is a season when you really want everything to be pretty polished and everything to be pretty together. And then all of a sudden they start setting stuff out and it's kind of invading the entire, uh, the entire plan, they're kind of messing with your vibe and all the things you had planned for your kids and all the things that you had, had hoped to make a reality and all, oh, and all of a sudden they start breaking stuff. Um, not on that one. <laughs> See, they start, they start messing with all your stuff. They start breaking things. Uh, they, they, start, they start getting in your business and it gets really uncomfortable, doesn't it? And some of you, I mean, you like things a little more controlled, a little more uh, under, a little more kind of settled. You start to feel a little bit uncomfortable. Um, and, and you do, right? And it starts to look a little bit messy. And Christmas is a season where we tend to want everything to be polished and perfect, where we tend to want everything to fit exactly according to plan and run exactly the way we want to. But really Christmas is about an, an adventurous and unexpected guest who makes an appearance in the world that many people did not anticipate. Um, it had been announced, but most people had forgotten that he was coming. Most people didn't realize that he was gonna show up and, or maybe they, they knew that he was supposed to come, but they stopped believing that it was ever gonna become a reality and they didn't think he would ever really make an appearance. And here's what I want us to understand as we think about Christmas. If you don't understand the importance of Jesus coming, then Christmas can feel a little bit off. And maybe you're gonna miss out on some of the meaning of what Christmas is really about. So if you've got your Bibles, turn with me to John chapter one. We're gonna be in John's gospel, chapter one, and we're gonna look all of, at all of one verse today, John 1, 14. As we look at this one verse, here's what I want you to understand. 
The truth of this one verse is so significant that it shapes every single thing in the life of a follower of Jesus. And it informs everything we do in the life of our church. It shapes how we understand the human endeavor of life. It shapes our understanding of who God is. It shapes our understanding of how it is that we have a relationship with God at all. It's foundational to why we started our church. It's foundational to why we invite our friends to come and hear about Jesus. It's foundational to why we go out and serve in our city. It's foundational even to why we're looking at land and want to establish a a home and a presence and a place in a particular city, in a particular time to announce Jesus coming into the world for generations. It informs everything we do. In fact, this one verse contains some of the most beautiful truth we could ever imagine. What we're gonna see today is the motivation for our worship and the motivation for our mission is, is wrapped up in the mystery of the incarnation, the coming of Jesus into this world to become one of us. So John 1 verse 14 says this, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glories of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. See, John's approach as we get into this, John's approach to Christmas is more of a theological one than it is a narrative one. He's more interested in kind of the the cosmic Christmas of the unfolding plan of God and what he was doing than it is in the narrative of the minutia and the manger and all the details of what was happening in the birth of Christ. John is more interested in announcing kind of the big picture story of what's happening. As we get into this, we're gonna to need to define some terms because there's, uh, these, the, each term in this verse is, is packed with meaning and is just loaded up. And so we're gonna to have to unpack some of it. The very first thing it talks about is the word. When it, when it talks about the word became flesh, it's really talking about this big idea in that, in that time period. In fact, many of the uh, philosophies of that day and some of the false religions of that day would talk about the word or the logos, which is the Greek term for word. And it was this big idea of either kind of the first mover that made everything happen or this one who is outside of all creation, and, but, but was the one of all knowledge that that held all the keys of the universe and sort of set everything in motion. So there were these ideas out there about this, the the logos or the word that was kind of floating around in the aura of of that culture and of that day and and in the discourse. And John comes in and he takes that term and he co-ops it and just says, let me show you what that really is all about. Let me show you what this thing, this logos is all about. And so when he talks about the word in John 1, you notice in John, uh, John 1, 1, all the way up through John 8, 1, 18, he kind of, which is the prologue of John or the, the kind of the introduction to his book, he talks a lot about this idea of the word. And he's gonna say the word is Jesus. Jesus is God's word to us. And the word is God making himself known to us in the most profound way possible. In fact, God has made himself known through his self-expression, his self-revelation, his self-kind of disclosure to the world. He's unveiling himself so others can see who he is through his activity, through his speech and his revelation, and also through his plan of salvation. But the ultimate disclosure we see in John takes place through the arrival of Jesus into our world, where Jesus actually explains who God is in his appearance. We got to see him. We got to observe him, we got to watch. Verse 18 says, Jesus has made God known to us. And the the term there is that he has led out to us. In fact, when you think about preaching, oftentimes we talk about exegesis. And what that means is that you take the Bible and out of it, we lead you into and, and inform you of the truth. 
And what, what this passage is saying is that Jesus and his arrival informed us and preached to us and taught us who God is and what God is like through his appearance on this planet. Hebrews 1 says it this way. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers through the prophets in the Old Testament. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. God communicated to us in Jesus' arrival on the planet. Now, how did Jesus make God known to us? Well, first we need to understand that John teaches that Jesus was actually God. If you go back a few verses to John 1, 1, it says, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God and all things were made through him. So the word Jesus, it says, was in the beginning. Uh, where else do you see that phrase show up in the scriptures, in the beginning? Genesis, the Bible starts the very first words, in the beginning. John takes that and says, you know what? This one Jesus, he was there in the beginning of Genesis. And so he starts his book and says, in the beginning was the word, meaning Jesus was there before Genesis was written. So Jesus was there in the beginning but he says, and the word was with God. So you have the word Jesus, and it says he's sitting there with God, right? So God's next to him. So they're together. Um, but then he also says in the next phrase, and the word was God. And this is the mystery we call the Trinity, that God is uh, somehow one God, but three persons. And so you have God the Father, God the Son, Jesus is with God, his Father, and yet he also was God himself. And it says that he was one who was part of the creation of the world. He was also a creator. All things were made through him. So Jesus was, was God, co-equal with the Father, and yet he was distinguishable from God the Father as a separate person. And in this, um, what we see in verse 14 is that though he was God, you see verse 14, everything turns and it says, and the word became flesh. Now in that world, that would have been a shocking, scandalous statement. When you heard this idea that the word, this divine being, this, uh, the, the, this one who's otherworldly and outside of all creation, they would, uh, there, there's many people in that world that would have said, okay, I'm tracking with you. I got that word. The word is like, he's divine, he's otherworldly, he's out there. And then all of a sudden you say, and the word became flesh and they go, oh, time out. No, that doesn't work. Because if God's divine and he's out there, he can't also be finite and down here. That somehow those two things don't go together. And, and so that would have been this kind of scandalous statement. And you understand when it says that the word became flesh. When it says that it became meant it really was flesh and bone. That it didn't just clothe itself in flesh. It didn't just kind of slide into, into the flesh. It didn't morph into flesh. It wasn't a shapeshifter that kind of was like, ooh, I'm flesh now and oh, now I'm not flesh. But there's, this, there, there, there's an actual reality that, that God the Son became human, he became flesh, he became man, he became one of us. And so he's still God, fully God, John 1, 1, 2, and 3. But now he's also fully human. He's begotten, not made, meaning he wasn't created, but somehow he became human, he became like us. Any of you like Mexican food? Theologically, we, we use the term for this, we call it the incarnation. Any of you know what carne asada is? Carne meaning meat, it's flesh, right? It's, it's meaty stuff. And that's kind of the word here. When it talks about incarnation, he's talking about that Jesus took on flesh. He took on, he became like meat. That he wasn't just the spiritual God that was out there otherworldly, but he entered our world and became one of us. The creedal statement 
uh, that really refuted the Arian controversy, the other controversy, said he was begotten, not made, meaning uh, the Arians and many claimed that, well, Jesus was really just appearing to be a man, but he didn't really, he wasn't really a man. Uh, and so he, he wasn't really eternal, but that he was created, as the Arians would say. And what this says is he was not created, he was begotten. He entered our world and took on flesh. And so you see these controversies that John 1 uh, anticipates. And later the early church had to fight over it and tried to understand how do we really understand that Jesus was fully God and fully man? And they came to understand that he had to be 100% both. And that's what John teaches here. Now, this is strong and shocking language. There's emphasis here on the weakness and the mortality of the flesh. How can one who is God also be flesh? Romans 8 says, for God sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh. Philippians 2, Christ emptied himself, being born in the likeness of man. So there's this kind of a sense that this divine being has taken on this, hum this humble role and become like his creation. The creator becomes like one of those that he created. The divine, other, divine is by definition otherworldly, but here we see that the divine is also now in the world. It's, an, it's kind of telling you the story that the untouchable is now touchable. The, the one who is all powerful has become like one who is weak and somehow Christ and then God is inextricably bound up in, in human history now. That he's, he's entered our world and in, in a moment in time and become like us. Now, why is this so important? Well, John 1.18 tells us that it's, it was the best way and the most profound way that God could make himself known to us. Was that he became one of us and appeared like us so that we could understand who he really was. See, the mystery of the incarnation will always be a really strange thing to people who think that God, uh, think that religion's all about performing well, doing better, and earning your way to God. The, the incarnation is always gonna seem like a strange thing if you think that the, the religion or the foundation of Christianity is you being smart enough or good enough or righteous enough that God has to say, man, you come on up. You've done, you've done way, you know, way to go. You've done so well, you come on in. Because the incarnation says the exact opposite. In fact, the incarnation says we could not find God. The incarnation says we could, never, we could never discern through our intellectual prowess a way to God. It says that we could never work our way through moral or religious effort to find God. It says that there was no amount of spiritual enlightenment or spiritual practices that we could do to get in touch with God. What the incarnation says is that God had to come to us. God came to us in order to save us. And that is the heart of really what we talk about when we think about Christmas. Now, sadly, when we think about Christmas, oftentimes we sentimentalize this, don't we? We sentimentalize the scene and we kind of create this hallmark movie about this innocent baby and this lonely, uh, lonely teenage mother wandering into a manger and somehow the manger smells really nice and, and animals that are farm animals didn't have flies and didn't poop and it was all really clean and somehow we, we wander in there and shepherds come in, shepherds that, by the way, had been outdoors uh, day and night, sweating, sleeping, all of that, and come in, and they don't stink bad enough that Mary's like, oh, man, not so close to my baby, right? But, but I've been to hospitals, and I've seen you ladies, and you come in, and the first thing you say is, did you wash your hands, right? But we, we don't see that in this story, but that's often the way, oftentimes the way in which we picture this, 
this scene. We think about a clear night skies and a guiding star and a young couple in love and angels in the heavens like the Brooklyn Tabernacle Choir and everything's just beautiful and they're about to burst out in song and baby never cries. And you know, we, think, we kind of create this nostalgic thing and we get uh, pastel posters and porcelain little, uh, little figurines and we, we set it up and create this beautiful Christmas image. But John shatters that here. He says, God became flesh. He became meaty. He became like one of us. So what we understand when you look at John is the epicenter of Christmas as a baby where nuclear power resided yet remained restrained. The epicenter of Christmas is a baby where choirs of millions waited to burst into song and yet held their tongue. Where lights um, wanted to strove with lightning level brightness but remained muted because there was a quiet of a baby and all the power of the God of the universe took on flesh and dwelt in a baby among us. And it's all that power that's restrained somehow and takes on the form of humanity. The Christmas song says, veiled in flesh, the Godhead see. The Godhead appeared in flesh and somehow we didn't see the fullness of his power and yet he was very much God in the flesh. Spurgeon said it this way. He talks about the incarnation. I love this. And I just cite this to say, people have pondered this for, for centuries and we're not going to ever wrap our minds completely around it. In fact, he says, as of any explanation of the incarnation, no man should even venture into it. For it remains among the deep things of God, one of the solemn mysteries indeed into which the angels dare not look nor do they desire to pry into it, a mystery which we must not attempt to fathom, for it is utterly beyond the grasp of any finite being. As well might a gnat seek to drink in the ocean as a finite creature to comprehend the eternal God, a God whom we, cannot, whom we could understand fully would be no God. If we could grasp him, he could not be infinite. If we could understand him, then he were not divine." One guy said uh, it'd be like trying to, uh, trying to contain Niagara Falls in a teacup. I've got some pictures here of Niagara. Any of you have been to Niagara Falls? I remember being there and watching and as you watch just the waters hurl over the edge and, and flow down, you just think of that, you feel the force and you hear the rumbling and you see the power of this majestic waterfall. And as you come around, and I, I love the image there, you think of a teacup. Um, Imagine the water falling off and you standing out there and going, okay, in here, y'all go get in here. What he says, what he says is, uh, Brandon Manning says, this is what the picture of the incarnation is like, is that somehow the power of Niagara Falls was contained in a teacup. You can't wrap your minds around it, can you? It's the same thing when we think about the God of the universe being, being born in human flesh. It's an amazing picture. Um, I love uh, what Brandon Manning goes on to say. He says, is there anyone in our midst who pretends to understand the awesome love in the heart of the Abba of Jesus that inspired, motivated, and brought about Christmas? The shipwrecked at the stable kneel in the presence of mystery. See, when we understand that we needed a savior, we understand that we had shipwrecked lives, and we understand the beauty that, that the savior, the, God of the, the, the um, God of the universe has taken on human flesh has become one of us in order to make God known to us and create a pathway for God. The only right response is just to kneel in worship of the mystery of the incarnation, the fact that Jesus came for us. 
The creator is here with his creatures. He didn't come though empty-handed. In fact, you see earlier in John that he comes with light and life and love and forgiveness and resurrection. So as we look at the rest of the verse, we get to see what, what all of Christ's appearing really meant for us and what, how it ought to shape the way in which we worship him. He says that he came, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. It means he made his dwelling among us. The word for dwelling there could also mean tabernacled. It, mean he, it could mean he pitched his tent next to us, that he moved in, that he rolled up in his RV in your driveway. It could mean that he moved into the neighborhood. I love what Eugene Peterson, he translates this. The word became flesh and blood and moved into the neighborhood. Um, Jesus moved in next door and became like one of us. You know, the Old Testament routinely spoken of, spoke of God dwelling with his people or taking up residence with his people or tabernacling or tenting with his people. And so as you see just a couple of the verses there, um, when you think about this in the Old Testament, it really is talking about God's visible presence with his people that he appears in, in a way that they can see him to say, look, I care about you. I love you. You are my covenant people. You're the people that I've chosen amongst all the people on the planet and my presence will be with you. And so God shows up. And so you see Exodus 25 um, says, "And, and let my people make a tabernacle that I may dwell in their midst. Leviticus 26 in the law says, I will make my dwelling among you and I will walk among you and I will be your God and you will be my people. Ezekiel 37 says, my dwelling place shall be with them and I will be their God and they shall be my people for my sanctuary is in their midst forevermore. We get to the end of the scriptures, you know, this idea shows up again. Revelation 21 says, and I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, the dwelling place of God is with men. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. That's also the time where it says, he himself will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death will be no more. Neither shall there be any mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. See, God answers our questions, our doubts, our desires, not with words, not with ideas, but with himself. God answers our questions with himself, with his presence by appearing and coming to us. And John knows all this because he saw it all. He was an eyewitness to it. So you know, notice he says, we have seen his glory. We're saying we have seen the ideas. We, we saw it with our own eyes and we were able to put our hands on it because it was so real. And John says, look, I saw the glory of God. We've seen that he, that, that the word, was, word became flesh. When you notice he says what, is, what it is he saw, he says we saw his glory. This is another one of those terms that shows up throughout the Old Testament and really takes on incredible meaning if you understand as you unpack that throughout the scriptures. Think of uh, Moses going on the mountain and as he goes up to the mountain to receive the law from God and receive the 10 commandments, it said that God descends upon it and they can see it. And so there's a, a cloud that, that covers and envelops the entire mountain. In fact, it was so visible that everyone below was so fearful that they, that they were, were horrified that Moses had been lost forever and they did not know what to do. Exodus 33, when they have the tabernacle, they build this tent and God, that God had commanded them to, to, to build and said that, that this will be the tent of meeting, the place where, uh, where Moses would go out and he'd meet with them and Joshua would kind of hang back and watch and then he would linger and meet with the Lord himself and said that when Moses would go to the temple, all the people would rise and they would wait and they would look and see what Moses would do and then this cloud would descend upon this tent of meeting or the tabernacle where they would meet. 
And so there, there was God's visible presence and his glory was there. Once they built the temple and, uh, and, and were, were, were kind of kick, kicking off worship in the temple in Jerusalem, it says the same thing, that this cloud of smoke filled the temple in this overwhelming way that made the God just saying, look, this is my people, this is my house, and this is the people with whom I will make my presence known. He revealed his glory to them. You know, it's the same glory that appeared in the Old Testament also appeared in Jesus. You know, it was, it was three of Jesus' disciples who were the, the, that saw him on the mountain at the transfiguration. Who were they? James, Peter, and John. John, who's writing this? John says, we've seen his glory because he did. When he was up on the mountain and the transfiguration came, God descended and says that Elijah and Moses appeared there and there was a sense. And what is it that, uh, what is it that the three disciples say whenever Jesus was transfigured? By transfigured meaning he kind of unveiled his glory and they got to see him, see a little more of his glory and a little more of who he was. And what was it they said when, when they saw him? They said, let us build a tent here, right? Let's dwell here. Let's stay here in this presence. Let's, let's live in this moment. Let's tabernacle with God and his glory on the mountaintop is what they desired to do. And so there's this sense in which they had gotten to taste his glory. In fact, Peter went on in 2 Peter and he says this way, describing that event. He says, we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus. Notice what he's saying. He's talking to a people and he's writing them a letter and he's telling them about Jesus. He said, look, we didn't just make this junk up. Like we didn't just listen to someone and go, hey, here's a crazy wild idea. Let's try this as a spiritual path. He says, we didn't invent or didn't follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father and the voice, voice was born to him by the majestic glory said, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. It's likely there's a reference here to what, we, what, we, what scriptures call the Shekinah glory, which is the, the, the shining glory of God's presence amongst the people. And this is what Peter said he saw. And this is what John says he saw. We have seen. You know, if you go about making a documentary film, who is it that you want to be on that film? You want people that were actually there for the event. Whatever it is you're documenting, whatever historical event or whatever biography or whatever life story that it is that you're trying to tell that story, the people that you want to get on film are the people that could taste and smell and touch and they, they experienced all the things that were going on in that period of time. And they're the ones you want to tell the story in order to make it a compelling documentary. And what these guys say is, it's not just a story, it really happened. We were eyewitnesses. We got to put our hands on him. We saw him. We heard him teach. We, we heard the message of everything that he did. We saw the way that he cared for women. We saw how he invited the children up. We saw how he cared for the handicapped and the poor. We saw how he ran after the outcasts and the brokenhearted. We saw how he lifted up the countenance of those who had lost all hope. We saw how he humbled the proud. We saw how he, how he sent out those who would follow him. We saw how he healed the sick. Um, we heard what the demons said about him when they announced that he was the son of God. We, we saw when the centurion announced that this surely was not just any old man. And we, we got to be eyewitnesses to all of this. Imagine, imagine John with everything he had seen sitting down 
and saying, okay, I've got to write something that captures all of that. I somehow have to write something that tells everyone for the rest of human history everything I saw when the all-powerful creator of the universe took on flesh and walked amongst us. I mean, it would be overwhelming. I think that's why John goes to images like the ones he did and he just says, look, we've seen it and we understand what all of this is about. So what difference does it make? Does all this make for us? Well, here's the sad truth. It may make no difference at all. All this could make no difference. You, you, may, you may go through the motions of Christmas year after year, then it may not ever really impact you. In fact, what you see is the first Christmas didn't impact some people either. And in John 1 verse 11, it says, he came to his own and his own people did not receive him. See, Jesus appeared and when he did, there were people that they got to be eyewitnesses to what it was. They heard what he said. They saw what he did. They, they experienced the life that Jesus lived amongst them and they did not receive him. It impacted them none at all. There are people that, that get to observe Jesus, but it doesn't impact, they don't receive him. And so it doesn't end up making any difference. But you also notice verse 12, the next verse says, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Some saw and did not receive. Others saw and received, believed. And when they did, they got to become children of God. God called them not just friends, but sons and daughters. Friends, this is the crux of all Christianity. Having seen the glory of Jesus, will you receive him? Calls him the only son of the father, meaning that he's completely unique. He's the only one. He's the only way of salvation. He's the only one that can explain what God the Father is really like. He's the only one that can explain all of life to us. And so as, he, as he's come to us, we have to decide if we're gonna receive him or not. This one, the only son of God, is the one that comes and brings us news of something infinitely important. Notice it says in the, in the last section there of, the, of verse 14, it says that he was full of grace and truth. This is a very famous pairing of Old Testament words and all throughout the Old Testament, you see this kind of grace and truth idea show up over and over and it's repeated, uh, it shows up repeatedly throughout the Old Testament. And really here in, in Greek, it's two nouns that mean, uh, it's charis meaning grace and aletheia, which, is, which means truth, truth. Uh, there's Hebrew words that correspond to those that you see in the Old Testament. And when you think about those words, the word for grace there means steadfast love, mercy, covenant love, loyal love, loving kindness. What, it, what it's talking about is God's kindness to his people when they didn't deserve it and his commitment to his people out of loyalty to the promises he made that they would always be his people. So there's this covenant commitment that God makes and says, look, by grace, I love you because I love you and my love will never depart. That's the, the word that's used here for grace. And the word for truth means faithfulness. It's God's fidelity to his promises. It's that God always keeps his promises. He never turns his back on things which he has committed to do. And so you can trust him no matter what. It's his, it speaks of his constancy. It speaks of his loyalty, of his faithfulness, of his never ending love for us. And together, you think of those two words and you put them together. And the, the idea you're meant to get is the idea of enduring love. The, the, when it says Jesus is full of grace and truth, Jesus is full of enduring love towards you that's aimed at you, that nothing can turn away or thwart. 
Do you know this is also the terms that are used when God made himself known? Remember the story of Moses when Moses was, uh, was, was with God and he said, God, just more than anything I want in this planet, would you just show me your glory? And God said, no one can see my glory and yet live, but, but, but you go hide, hide in, the, in the rock. And as I pass, I'll show you just a glimpse. I'll give you just a taste. And, and so Moses goes and he hides and God appears before him. And as he reveals to him and gives him just a glimpse of his glory, God reveals himself to, or God announces his appearance to Moses. And he announces it through his name and how he describes himself. And he says, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. When God appeared to Moses, when he gave him the law, he revealed himself this way. And those two words, Steadfast love, that's the word grace that John uses. Faithfulness, that's the word truth that John uses. John is saying that the God who revealed himself to Moses as the covenant God who is for Israel and for his people is the same God that is, that's appearing in Jesus. And Jesus is full of grace and truth. And so we can trust him. That's what our relationship with God is really based on, right? It's not based on our merit. Israel's relationship was certainly not based on their merit. And yet God said, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. John says of Jesus, he came and he was full or abounding in grace and truth. So when we accept that Jesus is really who he says he is, what it does is it creates a love relationship that we have to God. It allows us to admit our weakness. It allows us to to find something stronger to hold on to than our fickle feelings and our weak performance. See, if all we're clinging to is self, if all we're clinging to this Christmas is the nostalgia of a wonderful holiday, the, the glory of a perfect family, uh, the, the perfection of your own, your own moral behavior or your own intellect and your own desires, if, if that's all you've got for Christmas, then it's gonna come and go and you'll have some nice meals, you'll have some good laughs, but it's not gonna carry you home. And you may get a glimpse of joy. You may get a taste of something good. And what I want you to know is that taste of something good that sometimes shows up at holidays is meant to whet your appetite for a taste of a forever good that never ends, that never goes away. That's not, that's not uh, that can't be interrupted, that can't be disrupted, that can't be uh, dispersed, but is going to go on for all time. And so you're invited into that. Grace and truth, though, only come through Jesus. The grace of God we see in the Old Testament is the grace of God we see in the incarnation and the grace of God that we see as we go to be with him forever one day. Do you know what part of what this means for us is that this is why God gave us the church? God in his brilliance sent people out and Jesus sent his disciples out and said, go and make me known. It's what we do when we come to the table every week and and we come to the communion table and Jesus said, as often as you gather, do this in remembrance of me. And what he's saying is, remember my grace, remember my appearance. Remember that I was incarnated. Remember that I was in the flesh. Remember that my body was broken, that my blood was shed. And so we come to the table, we're announcing the incarnation. We're announcing that the word became flesh. We're announcing that God was one of us. And not just one of us, but he took the form of a servant and gave his life up for us so that we might be reunited to him. And so in churches all around the world, we come and we announce the incarnation week after week, announcing that Jesus came for us 
uh, in the flesh, but also announcing that he was full of grace and full of truth. And so the tables opened anyone that would come and it would simply trust him, receive him and come as a child of God. See, God's self-expression, his self-revelation, verse 18 tells us that Jesus came in the flesh so that he could make known, make God known to us. He wants us to be restored to a relationship with him. As I think about this, I think the question for us is, do you know him? Have you believed the reports about him? Have you, have you listened to the eyewitnesses and weighed the evidence and decided if you're gonna be one of those who says, no thanks, I'm not sure, or one of those that says, yes, I believe, I receive, I wanna be a child of God. To those, God, to, to those who believe, God has called them friends. And I wanna end with this. I read a story this week that made me think about what it's like to, to, to sometimes question the reports that you hear. The story was from a young lady and she was telling a story that her father had told her. And her father was a, was, was a scientist that worked on kitty litter in rural Iowa. And he was a, an Asian descendant, from, an immigrant from China who was of Asian descent. And as he felt like an outsider in rural Iowa, he would take business trips and he'd go to these different places. He came back one time and said, hey, I've got a new friend. And they said, who is that? And he said, the basketball player, Charles Barkley. And her sister, his daughter said, okay, sure, whatever. You know, like, I don't know how that would work. And he'd come back again from another trip. And he said, yeah, I hung out with Barkley again. We did, you know, had a good time. And uh, finally he'd tell these stories and he'd, he'd come to, he said that every dinner conversation he'd have, he began to talk to people about his friend, Charles Barkley and the times they'd spent together. And he, she said, and everyone started making fun of him. So he literally would go to the office and people would be like, hey, how's Barkley this weekend? And he'd be like, oh, it was good. We had a good time. Went out to eat the other day in Phoenix. And everyone just kind of laughed at him. He said, finally, his daughter got a little nervous and she said, hey, can I see your text strings? You said you text with him. Can I see him? She looked at him and said, those seem kind of one-sided, like you're texting a lot and he's not saying a whole lot back. And she honestly said she began to be fearful that someone was either playing a prank on her dad or that he was just deceived and really confused. And so she began to be fearful. But as she told the rest of the story, it turns out he did know Charles Barkley. In fact, in 2016, um, he, she said that he, uh, her, her father became sick and became ill. And as um, she had, as her father passed away, eventually passed away, she said she just pulled out her dad's phone and thought, well, I'm just gonna text everyone and let him know that he's passed. And so she texted and she took a risk on that one, uh, that one uh, person that was in his contacts, Charles Barkley, and sent a, sent a text saying that his fa- her father had passed. And here's how she ended the article. She said, The funeral was set near the outskirts of Iowa City in a house by the woods. I was talking to a childhood friend when suddenly, when she suddenly looked stunned. I turned to look behind me and standing there drenched in sweat from the Iowa summer, towering over everyone in the room was six foot six inches tall, Charles Barkley. Everyone watched astonished as this man, this man we only knew from TV, this worldwide celebrity walked down the aisle, looked at us and sighed. And then she ends her article and says, I know how, how much his friendship with Charles Barkley meant to my dad. It was not just a relationship with a celebrity, it shed light on the possibilities of this world. I'm so glad that I get to know that now I get to share my dad's number one dinner party story too. Friends, we have a celebrity far greater than Charles Barkley. And he, Barkley rose up to dunk a basketball victorious in a game. Jesus rose up 
is a resurrected king, victorious over sin and death. Um, your friend is far greater than any celebrity. And he's, in, he's gonna show up also at your funeral if you've received him. But he won't just show up as a spectator. He'll show up as a participant taking you home. Friends, there are things we can live for in this world that are good, but there's one that we need to know that's not just of this world. He is fully human of this world, but he's also otherworldly. He's fully God. And he promises if we trust him that he will deliver us to forever joy. Let me pray for us. Father, we do thank you for your son. We thank you that we can know him. We thank you that there are eyewitnesses who have told us about him. We thank you for the beauty and goodness of his life, his death, and his resurrection. Would you help us to trust him? Father, in all things, we pray it in Christ's name. Amen.